I realised as I was uh, preparing this week that uh, I really love uh, these opening chapters of the Bible, uh, chapters one to three of Genesis. I just I just find them so compelling. They just uh, paint such a true picture of the world in which we live. They explain so much about the world. They explain why it is a world that is yet so good, so full of beautiful things to delight in, uh, why we can enjoy uh, so much in this life. And yet at the same time, they explain why side by side with that there is such uh, sorrow and toil and hardship in life, why life is ultimately tragic, isn't it? Tragic because of, of death, if nothing else. Uh, and there is plenty else that happens in life that is tragic as well, isn't there? And these opening chapters of the Bible, they really explain it all. There is no mystery if we understand what's here in these chapters of why the world is the way it is. Uh, the only mystery, if there is one, is what is going to be done about it? Uh, and it's the question that really the Bible was written to answer, isn't it? The rest of the Bible, you know, from Genesis chapter 4 onwards, written to answer that question. What is God doing about this world? Well, how about we pray uh, as we dig into this chapter? and start to think about what has happened and what God has done. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word and uh, we know that every part of it is from you. Uh, we thank you especially this morning, though, for these opening chapters, these early chapters, and particularly for chapter 3, uh, which introduces us to uh, where things went wrong, uh, why the world isn't uh, now the... Um, uh, the unadulterated and, and purely beautiful place that you made. Uh, but also, uh, yeah, this chapter which explains so much of who we are and our experience of life as well. Father, we ask that you'll help us to, um, to hear you speak to us your truth about um, who we are, who we are before you, and who you are towards us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you've got uh, some way of looking at a Bible uh, in front of you there, because uh, I'm going to be dealing directly uh, with the text. And uh, chapter 3 starts in much a similar way to the way that chapter 1 begins. Remember, chapter 1 begins, uh, in the beginning God. We're introduced to God in those opening words of chapter 1. And here we're introduced to another character, a character who hasn't appeared yet on the scene, now the serpent. Now the serpent. Uh, where did he come from? <laughs> I mean, where to understand, I suppose, that he is one of the creatures that God made, uh, listed in the list of creatures that God made, uh, the living creatures who lived uh, on the earth were those who uh, moved along the ground, and presumably the serpent uh, is 
one of those. And yet uh, he is the first of those creatures, as far as we know, who uh, has a voice. And so he's different, isn't he? And starts to uh, raise questions about his nature in his identity. Uh, in fact, for you, perhaps it starts to raise questions about whether we are actually reading something historical or some kind of fairy tale or fable, uh, a talking snake, um, not part of my everyday experience of life. Uh, and yet, here he is uh, in the garden. Uh, it's hard to answer all the questions that rise, really, about this snake. Uh, in fact, I would say it's fairly impossible. There are clues later on in the Bible I think the most we can say at this point, though, the most we can be clear about at this point is that he is up to no good. Uh, He's described as more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God has made. Uh, He is up to no good. In fact, he is God's enemy. We can tell by what he says and uh, the direction in which he is trying to lead Eve that he is God's enemy. I think, at the very least, we may not be able to say that the serpent is Satan, but we can certainly say that he is the mouthpiece, the mouthpiece of Satan, that somehow Satan is working through this creature, this serpent, as God's enemy. And so uh, into the beautiful uh, melody that has been woven uh, through creation up to this point, As we left off chapter 2 last week, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That beautiful image of of oneness and openness in relationship. Uh, Now uh, a sombre or or perhaps foreboding note has entered uh, into the weave of the soundtrack. And uh, we note there in verse 1 that the serpent uh, eyes his target. And his target, target is the woman. Note that. Any, uh, the more, serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Why Eve? Why did the serpent go to Eve and not Adam? I don't think it's because she was some weak-willed woman or something like that. Uh, Maybe it's because it was to Adam that God had spoken his command. So if you go back to chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. In fact, in the flow of the account of chapter 2, Eve had not yet been made. At this point, Uh, Adam was the only one there and it was to Adam that God spoke this prohibition, this command. So perhaps that's got something to do with it, that Eve may have been less familiar or the word of God had been less direct or something like that to Eve. But I actually think that there's something more likely, a better explanation than that going on here. And I think it's because... The serpent doesn't just uh, want to get Eve to eat the fruit. 
He doesn't want mankind just to turn against God. Even in the way that he wants them to do it, he wants to subvert God's good design. And so here he is. Remember the pattern? Remember that God made Adam and he made Eve his, Adam's helper and they were to rule over all the other creatures? And here we have one of those creatures who were meant to be the lowliest, ruled over by man, coming to the woman so that she might then go to her husband and everything be turned upside down. So I think that's probably why the serpent goes to Eve. And to Eve, into Eve, he plants into her mind a seed of doubt. A seed of doubt. First of all, I think he is planting a seed of doubt about God's character in the question, uh, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, God didn't say anything like that. In fact, God said almost the opposite of that. Uh, In fact, in verse 16 of chapter 2, which we read earlier, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. It's, It's the opposite, isn't it? Except, one, you must not eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But here comes the serpent, sowing this seed of doubt, making God out to be harsh, to be restrictive, to be holding back. Eve, in her response, seems to start well, doesn't she? She says, no, you've got it wrong, serpent. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Top marks, Eve. Well done. She's turned him away. Although there is this one little detail, isn't there? And you must not touch it or you will die. I don't remember hearing God say that. Let's go back and have a look. God didn't say that. I'm not sure where that entered the story. Did Adam perhaps pass it on that way, Chinese whispers, and just kind of, you know, get it not quite right? Or perhaps is Eve somehow just wanting to accommodate a little bit here with the snake? Hard to know, but whatever the reason, it seems that Satan's strategy has worked. That something has been added that is untrue. Something has been spoken that is untrue from the mouth of Eve about her God to suggest that he is perhaps restrictive or fearful. The damage has been done. Uh, In the next question, or it's not a question so much, is it? It's a statement. Uh, The serpent continues to sow these seeds of doubt, and in this uh, instance it's doubt about God's word. He contradicts what God has said. God has said, if you eat, you will die. But the serpent says in verse 4, you will not certainly die. Rather, and here comes doubt about God's motives, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God is concerned for his own good and not for yours, basically, is what the serpent is saying to the woman. He tells this blatant lie. 
that you will not certainly die. Direct contradiction to what God has said, and yet he makes it believable by coding it in the truth. Do you notice that? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is actually something that God agrees with. This, this is true. Have a look at uh, what happens afterwards in chapter 3, verse 22. God says, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. See, what the serpent was holding out was actually true. What he was appealing to was actually true. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. But even this truth is used by the crafty servant to distract Eve from the most basic truth of her identity, which we saw last week. She's already been made like God in all the ways that he intended. You see, it's like selling ice to the Eskimos or something like that, isn't it? Satan, he's a, he's a good salesman. He's selling what she already has. And yet it's a corrupted version of what she already has. But he makes it sound appealing because she hasn't yet got it. And so she's sucked in. And so in verse 6, we read that tragic verse. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye... Now, never mind the fact that all the trees were described that way. Uh, Back in verse 9 of chapter 2, the Lord God made all kinds of trees out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So there was no need to go to that tree. But when the woman saw, remember this is all she's seeing now, this is where her gaze has been directed, away from God and to the tree... Good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. So simple the act. So hard it's undoing. I read this week that God himself would have to taste judgment and death before take and eat would become words of life again. If only Adam had been there to stop her. Oh, hang on. He was, but he didn't. Isn't that tragic? She took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. He's there the, he was there the whole time. And he said nothing. There's your weak person. And he ate it as well. He listened to his wife, who had listened to the serpent, and neither of them listened to God. They swallowed the lie. And the whole created order was turned on its head in an instant. And immediately... Judgment falls. That's perhaps not exactly how we would have expected it to happen if we've read the story up until now. What did God say would happen? You'll die. What actually happened is then their eyes were opened, which is interesting, but not in a good way. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. See, I think that the judgment has already begun to fall as their eyes are opened. The first thing they judge is themselves. And then they end up judging each other. And finally, they are judged by God. Let's think about what it looks like for them to judge themselves. As their eyes are opened, shame enters the world. It's interesting people talk about how someone makes them feel guilty. You can't actually feel guilty. Did you know that? You can be guilty. See, guilty is an objective reality, guilt or innocence. What you feel is shame. And that's what happens here. Adam and Eve are guilty. What they feel is shame. It's a new feeling for them. I hadn't experienced it before, remember? Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. But now something that was good, something that was part of God's good design, bodies made for each other, are now seen as some kind of reason to be ashamed. Some kind of threat has entered and they need to feel the need to cover up, to break off their relationship in this way, for something to come between them. And so they... There's this pathetic act of trying to sew some fig leaves together. I've never tried to sew fig leaves, but I can't imagine it's very effective. But they're ashamed, and this is their response. The serpent promised that they would taste glory, be like God. But all they tasted was fear and shame. And so to try to deal with what has happened, to try to deal with this feeling of shame, they start employing all sorts of instinctive, newly instinctive strategies to deal with it. Firstly, they try this cover-up method, you know, the fig leaves, and to hide. The next thing is they they hear uh, the Lord God, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they're hiding from each other and now they're hiding from God as well. God comes looking for them. He asks, where are you? Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked. Now, is that the truth? Is that really what's bothering Adam, that he's naked? He is afraid because he is ashamed, because he is guilty. The truth of the matter isn't just that he doesn't want God to see him naked. He doesn't want God to know what he has really done. See, he's trying to deny what he's really done. He's trying to minimise it in some way, trying to deflect and say, oh, it's it's because I'm naked, another strategy. And then God, knowing, of course, what has happened, says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And a third strategy comes out at this time. It's blame. Blame. The woman. It was the woman. She was supposed to help me and look what she's done. She's hurt me. And it was the woman that you put here with me, actually, God. If you hadn't put her here, I would never have eaten. It's, you, it's her fault and it's yours. And he asked the woman, what is this you've done? And she blames. She looks at her, who can I blame? And she knows where to point the finger. She points it at the serpent and blames him. And, of course, there's some truth in all of that. They're all complicit. 
but they all have to own their own responsibility as well, don't they? And notice that all these strategies are employed in answer to God's questions. Where are you? Who told you? Have you eaten? What have you done? Why so many questions when God already knows the answers? I think it's because he's actually trying to give them a chance to turn back. He's leaving the door wide open saying, come on, fess up. Own it. Let's deal with this. But instead of turning to God with their shame... They turn away. Now I wonder if you think about both Adam and Eve's sin, the seduction, how they fell into that sin, how they responded to it, how shame affected them, how they employed all these strategies to try and deal with how they were feeling and to deal with God. Do you recognise any of those things in your own life? Do you think that maybe the way that sin entered the world is the way that sin has continued to work in the world? Do you think that maybe Satan's strategies, you know, I don't think he's crafty, but I don't think he's all that creative. I think he just keeps using what works. I think he just tries to say, I've got something better for you than what you've already got. And I think we're prone to believing his lies. I think we're prone to looking elsewhere than God for our identity and what really matters, what's really of value in the world. I think we're easily seduced and won over. I think we give in and we stay silent when we should speak up. We don't help each other as we should to avoid sin. And when we do sin, we call it something else. We try to cover up. We try to deflect. We try to hide and minimise and blame. We got all the strategies because they flow from shame. And each one of us, we don't just feel guilty, we feel ashamed. And so we should. See, the really crucial thing to understand about Genesis 1 to 3 is that it's our story too. This is the story of the world. This is the story of our world. This is the story of men and women in our world. And Adam and Eve's situation is ours as well. So what happens next? Well, in response to their sin and their lack of repentance, God passes judgment. He passes judgment on the serpent and the woman and the man. We don't have time this morning to go into his judgment in detail, but it is a devastating sentence that is passed. Family life becomes a battleground. Work becomes toil. People become food for worms. And worst of all, Adam and Eve are sent away. It's the worst part of the judgment. They are sent away, shut out of the good garden, denied access to the tree of life, cut off from God himself. That's the sentence that is passed. And you might think, really? Really? 
for eating one piece of fruit? Surely that is too harsh. But only if you don't understand what's happened here. You see, Adam and Eve haven't just broken a rule. You know, we think we'll break a rule, pay a fine or something and move on. But that's not what's happened here. This is personal. This is between mankind and God. God is the one who made the rule. And so to break his rule is an affront to him and an offence to him. See, it's actually not just rule-breaking that's going on here either. We need to understand that what is on offer, what was offered by the snake, what was represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a decision to actually take into their own hands the right to make the rules. See, they already knew what was right and wrong, didn't they? They already knew what was good and evil because God told them, don't eat the fruit, that would be evil. They already knew what was right and wrong, but what they've done is decided for themselves, no, God, you know what? I'm going to choose that for myself. Their sin is not only rule-breaking, but also rule-making. Rule-making in the place of the true rule-maker, of the true lawmaker, the one who has the right and the responsibility to make the laws because he is the creator of all things. They take that into their own hands. They reject the rule of God. Do you see what's really going on now? It's treason. That's what's really happening here. It is treason, a rejection of God's rule of his world. And Adam and Eve are saying, no, we will rule your world. Ah. Now do you start to see why the punishment had to be what it was. Because how could God just hand over his creation, the world that he loved, to these people who had now turned away from him and were only going to ruin it? When you get how wrong sin is, you not only understand his judgment, but you actually start to see that it is judgment with restraint. that God actually holds back, in a sense, his judgment. As Helen uh, said in her prayer earlier, judgment doesn't fall immediately. Death doesn't enter immediately. Life goes on. Children are had. God enables the continuing of the story and of the race. But he does limit it. He says they can't be allowed to live forever. Why? (laughs) Boy, imagine a world of immortal despots. Every single one of us. What a corrupt world that would be. And so it's actually God's restraint that we see here. Even in limiting our lifespan, there is restraint. In providing clothes, there is, in fact, more than restraint. There is mercy. And I think in this passage, we also see, we begin to see the grace of God in the face of sin. Because the serpent wasn't the only one sowing seeds that fatal day. Remember God was a gardener? Remember God was a gardener before the serpent came along? And where the serpent sowed seeds of doubt that sprung up into weeds of sin and death, God, even in the midst of his judgment, sowed a single seed. He sowed a seed of hope. 
Now in Genesis 3.15, we read this in the punishment to the snake. God says, I will put enmity, that is hatred, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that word translated there, offspring, in my Bible, uh, a more literal translation would be seed. Between your seed and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, The Bible nerds call this verse the Proto-Evangelium, which just means first gospel. The first announcement of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, at first you might look at the judgment on the snake and compared to the judgment on the man and woman think that he gets off lightly. What does it even mean for a snake to have to crawl on the ground all the days of its life? I thought it would have already been doing that. But anyway, actually... The snake doesn't get off lightly at all because from this moment, his fate is sealed. God promises a serpent crusher, a seed of Eve, Eve whose sin meant death but whose name means living. A seed will come from her who will be vulnerable but victorious. You... Uh, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel, vulnerable but victorious. That is the promise, the little seed of hope that is sown here, even in the midst of judgment. Folks, this is the world we live in, isn't it? It's a world made good but turned bad. We live in a world that wears the painful scars and carries the shameful burdens of sin no matter how much we try to hide it. We live in a world that is, in fact, under the judgment of God still. But what is very surprising is that we also live in a world of hope and promise because God is faithful and he doesn't give up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're not far into the story and we have a long way to go. Uh, as we read through your word this term. Uh, But what we have already seen is uh, cause for great distress because we understand not only what happened in the garden when the serpent tempted Eve and she and Adam gave in to his temptation, to his lies and turned against you. We also understand that that has happened in our lives too. Father, I pray for every one of us that we would not deal with our shame in the way that Adam and Eve did, turning away from you, rather that we would learn because of your grace, that we would learn to bring our shame to you, knowing that you won't turn us away knowing that your questioning of us what have you done is meant to draw us to confession and repentance to seek and find forgiveness and knowing that that forgiveness is available because the promise that you made in the garden that little seed of hope grew Because you did send one to crush the serpent. You did send one to win the great victory and he won it on the cross 
vulnerable and yet victorious, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to deal with our shame by looking to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.